Good morning. I get kind of emotional during times like that because I just, I sense, you know, I spent the last two days with these guys on a retreat just praying for this church and you guys and dreaming about what the future of the church looks like and how we protect and watch over and guide and lead. And, um, you know, sometimes I wish you guys could all be a fly on the wall to watch um, and listen to the, just the hearts of the, the leadership in this church that love you guys dearly and really desire to see this church just propelled towards Jesus to be the brightest spectacle of Christ in this community that could exist. And, um, and it's an emotional thing. It's really sweet that we get to be part of Jesus' church. So anyway, um, not to start in a real somber note, but we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 10 this morning. <clears throat> And if you guys want to turn there, uh, stand with me again as we read the word. I'm going to save my breath on this list of 84 names that exists in this passage. But we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to read the last verse of chapter 9, verse 38. And then we'll dive into chapter 10, but we're just going to read from verse 28 till the end of 10. It says this. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of, and then he lists these 84 names. Verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular, offer, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of, our, of the Lord our God. As it is written in the law, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of, all of, our, of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, to bring the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes 
to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we lift up this time to you. And we take a deep breath this morning recognizing that you know above all, God, every situation in every life in this room. We acknowledge you as the only one that can speak into those situations, the only one that can provide for, sustain, the only one that can protect and watch over us, God. And I pray this morning, Jesus, as we dig into this passage a little bit, that you'd use some of the harsh realities of this passage to speak into our current situations. I pray, Jesus, that you just bless my tongue, um, Lord, that it would just be used for profitable purposes to edify and build up your church. And I pray for our hearts that they be open to receive from you this morning what it is that you have for us. And we give all of this to you in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. I've said this the last few weeks, um, but the, the first half of the book of Nehemiah was primarily devoted to this rebuilding and the restoration of the walls of Jerusalem, two and a half miles worth, um, this massive wall that they've reconstructed. But again, we've continued to just to emphasize the fact that the book of Nehemiah isn't primarily about the restoration of a wall, and we have to sort of get past that. Like, everybody immediately attaches Nehemiah to a wall. It's just part of the story for us, but we have to understand that uh, it wasn't primarily about the restoration of the wall. It was about the restoration of a people. And last week, Trevor did an amazing job teaching through chapter 9 and showing us that the story of God restoring his people back from their disobedience wasn't just something that he had been doing during the time of Nehemiah. This wasn't the first time that God did this, but it was something that God had been doing for the last thousand years of Israel's history in his people. A a thousand days before the days of Nehemiah, Nehemiah recounted how God, in his mercy, had saved his people. His people had been living in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and God saved them. God redeemed them. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt, but God didn't stop there because in a very real way, they were saved, right? They'd been redeemed from slavery, but they weren't yet restored. They'd been taken out of captivity, but they weren't yet restored. And God's saving work doesn't just stop with us, like stop us from something. Like it doesn't just guard us from something, but it actually restores us for something. And we have to understand that, that it's not just about God saving us from the catastrophes in this life, but it's actually about God saving us for something. God's saving work isn't merely about saving us from sin and death, but, but he's restoring us for something. What is it that God is restoring us for? He's restoring us for abundant life. As Jesus said, a life that's to the full, that that, that can come from living in full, like in full trust and obedience to God's word and to God's commands. Like there can be no true salvation, no true abundant life apart from obeying and keeping the word of God, apart from submitting to and trusting God's commands. And so after God saved his people from from slavery in Egypt, Nehemiah reminded God's people that he led them to Mount Sinai to give them something. 
And Nehemiah 9, 13 and 14 says this, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. And so you see church, God didn't just set his people free from slavery and then say, okay, you're free. Now go live the way that you want to. You're free, go do whatever you want. And for many of us, that's sort of our view of salvation at times, isn't it? I know I'm guilty of that. God, protect me, watch over me, save me, so that I can go do what it is that I want. We want for God to save us from our sins or the problems that we've got ourselves into or for God to deliver us from our health issues so that we can go live any way we want, that we can go pursue any, whatever desires that are in our hearts with no sense of restriction and no sense of authority in our lives. But true salvation, like true restoration as the people of God is impossible apart from the authority of the word of God over us. And God doesn't just save us from something, but he saves us for something. But for what? God saves us for right rules, it says, so that we might live under true laws and good statutes and commandments. His word says that what God is showing us through all of this is that actual freedom and salvation isn't having no rules and no laws, but having the right rules and his laws in place. And this doesn't happen when we fail to have an ultimate authority in our life. It only happens when we're serving the right authority as God, the head. That's when true freedom is actually found. And so not when you're free to do like whatever you want. You don't find true freedom in that. But when we're finally free to do whatever it is that God wants, like that is real freedom. But what Nehemiah 9 9 also showed us was that though God patiently and repeatedly gave his people his good and right commandments, like time and time again, his people, we, we constantly rejected, they constantly rejected those good and right commandments. Like Nehemiah 9 looks back over a thousand year history of Israel and it reiterates the patterns that you see in God's people all throughout the Old Testament. They rebel against him and his commandments, and then there's discipline that follows as God disciplines them because of God's righteousness, and then there's this restoration that follows because of God's mercy. He pours his mercy out on him, and you see this pattern repeated time and time again. Rebellion, discipline, mercy. Rebellion, discipline, mercy, over and over again for a thousand years. As I was thinking about this this week, I'm thinking it kind of sounds like our story, doesn't it? Do any of you ever feel like that? (laughs) That that's the pattern in our life sometimes. How many times have we failed? How many times have we sinned against God and disobeyed his word over and over and over again? And yet, how many times have we been met by God's mercy over and over again? And so now that God's people are reminded of their story and this thousand year cycle of their sin and their rebellion and disobedience, that was met over and over again by God's amazing mercy and his steadfast love, what's the response that the people have? What should our response be when we think about that pattern and that cycle in our lives? And this is what God's people did, Nehemiah 9, 38. Because of all of this, because of all of this, this pattern, we make a firm covenant in writing 
On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Because of this all, because of all of this, they say, because of all that they've done over and over again, and yet because of all of what God has done over and over again, because of all of this, they say, we're going to make a firm covenant in writing, and we're going to put our names on it, and we're going to submit it. And Nehemiah 10 through 127 is this list of 84 names that I talked about before. I'm going to save you guys the pain of me trying to pronounce them. But in this list, there's 84 leaders of God's people that write their names down in order to make this firm covenant before the Lord. Starting in verse 28, it says this, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all who have separated themselves, the holy ones that were set apart, separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath. So these 84 names are just representative. It's, it's everyone who's making this covenant. It's all of them. But there's these 84 names that are representative of all these people making this covenant. And they're making this, prominent, this promise and this commitment to do what? Look at the rest of the verse. To walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. To observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. So they're saying, God... We're making a covenant. God, we're making a promise. Your good rules, your true laws, all your commandments that you gave us at Mount Sinai, what you saved us for, what we rejected time and time again. Now we as a people, we're gonna make a promise to you, God. We're gonna make a commitment to you to keep and obey all of this. We're gonna do it all, we're all in. And some of you this morning might be saying like, yeah, that's really good. Like, I do that all the time as well. Re-up, make these commitments to the Lord. We often tell God things like, from now on, I'm gonna obey you. From now on, I'm all in, God. From now on, it's gonna be different for me. From now on, I'm gonna obey all that you say. But is that all that Israel is doing in making this commitment, is saying, from now on, God, it's all gonna be right? Is that all that they're doing? No. This is actually totally different, right? One way this is different is because they're literally writing it down, these commitments, their names. They're taking the time and the effort to write down their promises, write down their commitments. And the crazy thing about this is that they're not just writing it down privately, but they're actually writing it down publicly. Like there, there's this publicly witnessed formal covenant. It would be like us writing down our promises and commitments to the Lord this morning in some sort of a journal and, and signing our names on them and taking it to the rest of the church and to the elders of our church and to the pastors of our church and saying, these are the promises and the commitments that we're gonna make. Will you put your name on this to hold me accountable for the things that I'm committing to the Lord too? But they're actually even doing more than that. Look at verse 29 again. They join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath. What in the world does that mean? It means that God's people aren't just wistfully talking about it or writing about it. Like, I, I wish I could do this. Or, or wouldn't it be nice if I could just obey all of these things, God? 
But what they're doing here is formally making this covenant under the threat of a curse that they will obey and keep all of God's commands. Our God is this God of covenant. And his people are simply following the same pattern. In Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis 15, we see God making this covenant with a man named Abram. That, that he would bless him, that he would make a great nation through him, and that through Abraham's lineage, he would send this Messiah, Jesus, that Jesus would be born through his lineage, and that all the families of the earth would be blessed through this man. And when God spoke that to Abraham, God wasn't just wistfully speaking, like, I wish this could happen. Maybe it'll happen. And when God had those words written down, they weren't just like wistfully written down, like maybe it's gonna happen. They weren't just words from God, even saying that God had the best of intentions to make these things happen. They were sure, they were solid. God does not go back on his promises, and we often think if there was like extenuating circumstances, right, and, and something unforeseen at the, at the time of those words was to occur. For instance, if God's people kept rejecting his word for a thousand years, then the deal's off is how we would view it. I gave it to you, you continued to repeat those patterns for a thousand years, deal's off. And we hear over and over again that God's promises to us are sure, right? But then there are those moments when we think to ourselves, but did God know that I was going to do this, that, whatever it is? Did he know that I was gonna fail in the way that I'm going to or I did? Did he know that I was gonna fail him over and over again? Are there extenuating circumstances to my salvation that God might say to me this morning, deals off, you blew it. Is that the God we serve? Well, that's not how a covenant worked. A covenant was made by two parties. And the way this covenant would be made is they would take an animal, a cow, a goat, a, a ram, and they'd cut it in half. And the, the two parties would stand in between these two body parts of the animal, literally in the blood of the animal, and they would make a, co uh, they would make a covenant between one another, in the midst of the blood, in between these animals. Literally, the wording is that they would cut a covenant. So this is where we get the phrase, cut a deal with somebody. They would cut a covenant. And, and these two parties would make a covenant that while standing in this blood of the slain animal, they would be saying, may the curse of what happened to this animal happen to me if I'm not faithful in keeping the covenant that I'm making with you. This is the weight of the covenant that they're making. You're saying that no matter what, no matter what this person does to me, I will continue to be faithful. And when God's people came to realize their pattern of sin and rebellion over and over again and God's mercy towards them over and over again, they decide to step up and they decide to make a covenant. They'll say, they're saying, we'll keep and we will obey all of your commands, God, because you have shown yourself faithful. You have followed through. They couldn't think of a better response than this. And what Israel is doing is saying, we want to shift a thousand years of history where we've just jacked things up. We want to end this thousand-year cycle that we've been on, this trajectory that's continued of disobedience, discipline, mercy. We want to break the pattern. 
And what they're saying is we don't want to just live the way that we want anymore, God. It's literally only led to our misery. It's destroyed us. And so no matter what, God, we will be faithful to live the way you want. But the interesting thing about this is that they didn't make just a general commitment to the Lord. They didn't just say, we promise to obey everything, God. We just promise to obey all of it. And we all know what that's like, like in a moment of passion in our life to say, okay, God, from now on, I'm going to obey you. I'm going to do whatever it is you ask for me. From now on, I'll do whatever you say. But the majority of us in this room, I think, understand this. I got pulled over the other day going snowboarding with three other guys in this church. And uh, we're, in, we're in Sagal, and I get pulled over. It was, the, it was a really funny experience. I was going 120 in a 20-mile-an-hour zone. No, I'm kidding. Um, But my tendency in a moment like that, my tendency in a moment like that is to be like, God, if you get me out of this, I'll do anything for you. (laughs) Anybody else? Like, let's be honest here. You get in a predicament in your life, and your tendency is, I will do anything. I will obey everything if you just get me off this hook, God. Deliver me from this thing and I will do anything you ask. And we all say these kinds of things in the heat of the moment, but what about committing to obey God's specific commandments in your life? That's when it gets difficult, right? Because we can all say, I'll do anything, and then just sit back and be like, oh, wait for God to tell me to do something. It's like, what about specific things? Are there specific things that God's asked of you? That's when it gets difficult because that's when obeying God is no longer theoretical, it's real, it's tangible. That's when obeying God actually begins to cost us something. And we may all say that we want to obey God, like that's easy, it's easy to say, God, I'll obey you, until there are specific things that get called out that you need to do. And the question is, Will you obey his specific commandments in regards to marriage? Commandments in regards to work and rest, like he's gonna talk about here in a second. Will you obey those? Will you obey his specific commandments regarding generosity and your money? Will you obey those? Because this is the key to keeping all of the commandments. The key to keeping all of them is to regularly commit to specific commandments in specific seasons of your life. Church, I want you to consider this morning what specific things, commandments of God that he's calling to you to especially commit to right now in your season of life. And if you don't know where to start with that, read through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters five through seven, and ask yourself this question at least once a year. Write it down, share it with others to keep you Uh, accountable to this, but what specific commands of God can I especially commit my life to obeying in this this current season of my life? And here's the reality, and please hear this, if you don't get anything else this morning, is that you're committing, the things that you are committing to in your life right now are shaping you. Guaranteed. Whether for good or bad, Every one of us in this room has things in our life that we are committing ourselves to and they are shaping you. 
And so for God's people in committing to keeping all of his commandments, they only mentioned three specific things in this passage. Things regarding marriage, Sabbath, and money is where they go. And so that's where I wanna go this morning, real quick. The first commitment that they make in Nehemiah 10.30, they say this. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Many of us in this room are like, I'm good, you know, like, I don't have to worry about that. What in the world does that mean? Well, God's people are making a specific commitment to not intermarry with unbelievers, with people outside of the Jewish faith. And so the command wasn't to keep racial purity, so please don't hear that in this. That's not what was happening. Like you have Ruth and Rahab, if you remember those stories, those people, they were both Gentiles, but they came to a place where they put their faith and their trust in the God of Israel. And they're part of the direct lineage through which Jesus is born, and so God wasn't calling his people to a racial purity. That's not God's heart or intent. He's calling them to a spiritual purity. And so for all my single brothers and sisters in the house, and for some of you married, I'm gonna go off on a tangent for a second here. I'm asking for your grace to begin with. But I wanna have a real conversation this morning. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7.39 that a woman is free to be married to whomever she wishes. But he ends the passage with this, but only in the Lord is what he says. You're free to marry whoever you want, but only in the Lord. And Paul's saying there's so much freedom in marrying whoever you want. This command wasn't given like as a, as, for the purpose of like restricting you or taking away the possibility of a good or happy marriage with the person you want. It's quite opposite, actually. He's saying marry whoever you wish, but only in the Lord. In other words, don't go outside the Lord, don't go outside of his commands in order to just marry somebody. In another passage in 2 Corinthians 6, the Bible calls us not to be unequally yoked, is the verbiage that Paul uses. What does that mean? It says, don't commit yourself to or yoke yourself into a lifelong binding relationship with someone who isn't committed to a lifelong binding relationship with Jesus. Because what happens in a situation like that, and some of you have experienced this even in business, you get unequally yoked with somebody, and what happens is you get pulled this way, you get pulled that way. Your relationship, your marriage is unable to flourish because you have different definitions of what flourishing actually is. And so this is a difficult thing to share. For some of you, maybe even some, it's difficult to hear. But for those of you in this room, which I just feel like I see happening so much, with single people that are believers. They contemplate marrying somebody who is not a believer. And I'm gonna love you enough this morning to say watch out and don't do it. It's being unequally yoked. It's stepping outside of the family of God to marry the person you want, but not the person that God has for you so that you can be yoked spiritually with somebody who is going to drive you towards, push you towards Jesus, that you can have a marriage that honors him. In fact, I, I once heard it said that a believer who chooses to marry an unbeliever shows how deeply compromised their love for Christ actually is. Harsh statement. 
But Jesus said, in essence, unless you love me more than you love your closest loved one, you're not worthy of me. And it's an amazing claim that Jesus lays. Like, but, but if a believer enjoys the presence and the friendship and the intimacy of a person who rejects Jesus, whether that be a boyfriend or a girlfriend, more than the, the presence and the fellowship of Jesus, their faith and their love for Jesus is in question by Jesus. Like, Jesus says that. And that's the deepest issue, right? How can the heart of a believer embrace Christ as the most important gift, as ultimate satisfaction in life, and then reject the words of Jesus in order to be in a relationship with somebody that has no faith? Like, that is not God's design or intention. For some of you in this room who find yourself in a marriage this morning with an unbelieving spouse, I wanna give you some hope. What is God calling you towards right now in your life as you find yourself yoked to somebody who is not a believer? God's word tells us that your marriage isn't nullified, right? Your marriage is a marriage that God sees, that God actually recognizes, and so far as it depends on you, the believer, the marriage should not be broken. And that's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, that God's call is not for a change in marriage, but for a change in heart towards repentance. And so if marrying an unbeliever is something that you knowingly enter into as a follower of Jesus, know that he forgives you. Know that he's with you. That he doesn't desire for your marriage to be broken up, but he does desire that he would redeem your marriage for his glory. That becomes our prayer. And he's calling you to change your heart, to have faith and to trust. And while you may not know whether God will use your words, your witness, your prayers, to save your unbelieving spouse. We know that God is a God who stands ready to forgive constantly. We know that our God is a God who's bent in showing mercy, like that is his heart. And so because of that, you can have hope in your marriage. Second thing, another specific commitment they make, Nehemiah 10.31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. What are God's people committing to here? They're committing to obey his specific command to keep the Sabbath day holy. It had been years since they had done this. In fact, they had grown comfortable and stopped acknowledging that day that God gave them as a blessing to them. Keeping the Sabbath day holy is one of the Ten Commandments. And when they add this detail in verse 31 of not doing business on the Sabbath day, even when the people of the other nations are buying and selling and doing business, and then they add the detail that they will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt, which were commands that God gave to not only practice a weekly Sabbath, but actually to practice a yearly Sabbath on every seventh year. And what they're saying is, even if it costs us, God, even if it costs us, we're gonna trust that your commands are actually for us, that they're good for us. And even if it costs me, we're gonna obey you, God. Church, do you have a day of the week right now that you have set apart from all others? Do you have that? And not just a day where you get to sleep in and rest, but a day where you get to remember who God is, to remember what God has done for you, to enjoy the life that he's given you. Are you 
practicing a Sabbath day in your life that looks different from all the other, all other six days in your week. A day that you spend differently than all your friends or your family or your neighbors that don't know Jesus. Not a day merely set aside to sleep in and go to brunch, but a day that's devoted to rest, like for your soul, for your body, a day that you shape your life around and you do not allow life to take over. For Heather and I, this day is Fridays. This is our day. And I will tell you, when I have a Friday where I do not get the opportunity to live into that with my wife, I feel it all week long. And her and I will be like, we've gotten off course. Like, we need to get Fridays back intact again. They're good for our hearts and our souls, our marriage, our relationships. They're good for my walk with Jesus. Unlike many of you in this room, Sundays can't be the Sabbath day for me. (laughs) It ends up for our staff and whatnot being a work day for us. And so we try to take Fridays And many of you could shape your life around a day devoted to the Lord, a day where you're gonna devote it to rest, to connection with family, connection to the community of faith, a day that life will not devour like every other day that you live in, a day that's devoted to the Lord. Again, a day unlike any other church. Jesus said that God has given the Sabbath for us, right? That it was for us. His commandments are for us. Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. God has given us the Sabbath for our rest. God has given us the Sabbath for our enjoyment, for our healing, for our worship. He's given it to us for our restoration. In an age where seemingly everybody, to some extent or another, is impacted by anxiety and stress and panic and depression, it makes me wonder how much differently society would look if we actually lived into this day. Like God has just given you this opportunity to connect with him. Have you, will you shape your life around that so your soul can be restored? If we would simply just obey this command that God gave us to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, to keep it set apart, to keep it different from all other days, that's what they start doing. They start going like, man, it's been a hundred some odd years We haven't done any of this stuff. It's time to get things back in gear again. And that's what they begin to do in the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 10 ends with God's people making a commitment to obey God's command to give. And they make a specific commitment and they give money and resources so that the ministry of the temple can be done. Verses 32 to 34. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of our shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. Notice the word in verse 32 that we don't like, obligation. (laughs) So they're committing to obey God's command to give this temple tax. That's what's happening. It was about $12 in today's economy. It was a real nominal amount of money given yearly for the, perver- for the purpose of providing for all the essential and the regular needs of the temple at the time. It wasn't a bunch of money that they're giving here. It was a little bit, but they're saying, we obligate ourselves to give faithfully and regularly even the smallest amount to the house of God. 
Many of us in this room, we may not be in a position to give large amounts of money, and please don't take this as me trying to get your money from you for the church. It's the Lord's money. What is he asking you to do with it? And God would, would, would care, doesn't care, like how much you give. It's not about the amounts, really. The reality is that he cares about what you give in relation to what you've been given. It's never been about, your, about uh, the, the money or the amount of money to God. It's always been about the amount of your heart. Like, are you in? God wants your heart. And so in Mark 2, when Jesus sees this poor widow put two small copper coins into the offering box compared to the rich that were putting in a bunch of money, Jesus didn't discount the small amount that this widow gives. But he says to his disciples, look at what she's doing. Like, did you guys see that? Isn't this incredible? Look how she gave more than anybody else because while everybody else gave out of their abundance, right, they gave out of an amount that they would not even feel. She gave out of her, out of her poverty all that she had to live on. And so in giving, she was saying, God, I trust you. She, she gave him her whole heart. And similarly, God wants your whole heart. Keep reading, verse 35. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all our fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. Do you notice this like rapid repetition? The first fruits, the firstborn. They're committing to obey God's commands to give up their first, to give their best. Not give God their leftovers, but to give him their best. And the rest of the verse says, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. They're committing to obey God's specific command to give a tithe, which simply means a tenth of their income to the house of God. And why would they do this? Well, the chapter ends in verse 39 with their reason. We will not neglect the house of God. That's their purpose. They're committing to give up a first, the best of their money and their time because they're saying, we're not gonna neglect God's house. And people argue all the time whether, about whether or not God commanded us in the New Testament to give similarly as this, to tithe. But I really think that it's a pointless argument to get into. Because we know that, the, that God commands proportionate giving in the New Testament. That's the way he talks. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells the church to set aside on the first day of every week something to give as he may prosper. What does that mean? He's saying if God has given you a little, then it's okay to give a little. But if God has given you a lot, then give a lot. And the command to give in the scriptures has always been as a response, like proportionate to what God has first given to us. God never caused us to give first to him. It's always in response to what God gave first to us that we then give back to him. And so in light of all that God has given his people in the Old Testament, there's this corresponding command as a response was that God's people give a tithe to God's temple. And he's saying to his people, in the Old Testament, I gave you everything. All that I have, I've given to you. And now as a response, in recognition to what I've done for you, give a tithe, give a tenth 
back to me. And so what about in the New Testament for you and I? What is he calling us to as God's people now? To give to God's church. What's he asking of us? And the question of giving in the New Testament all boils down to this. So how much more do you believe that God has given to us in the New Testament? How much more has he given to us in the New Testament in his son than he gave us in the Old Testament? And based upon what you believe about what God has given you, you're called to give because he went above and beyond. That's all, no more, no less. And so the, the God to whom everything belongs gave us everything in his son. And so the question for a New Testament believer should be, so then how much do I have to give? And this is where we wrestle. Like what, do I give a 10th, do I give 5%? Does he want 80, 90? But the sobering question that I think we all should be asking is in light of how much God has given us in his son, how much do you get to keep? And that's a real sobering question. Because of their commitment to keep all of God's command, they made a commitment to obey these three specific commands. And what God's people are saying is that they want to reverse the thousand years of this pattern of disobedience and discipline and mercy. And they're saying like, from now on, God, it's gonna be different. It's gonna be a really beautiful and amazing thing that we're doing here because we're all in. But the craziest thing about this, this, this whole story, a spoiler alert, that in a few weeks when we wrap up Nehemiah, we're gonna see that they fail again in keeping God's commands. Nehemiah leaves for seven to 12 years, comes back, and the whole place is a disaster again. And you're like, for real? Like, I thought you were all in. So was all of this, this is the question I kept asking myself, was all of this for nothing? Because they're just gonna do it again, was it all for nothing? Everything that they're committing to, was it all for nothing? I don't know if you guys ask that question of yourself sometimes. We think to ourselves, is everything I gave and everything I did, is it for nothing? Because I know I'm just gonna continue to repeat the cycles of my life. I know that I'm a fallen man and that there are days when I'm going to make stupid decisions and so, is it all for nothing in our lives? All those times when we fail God and we turn to him and say, God, from now on, I'm all in. God, from now on, like, I'm gonna change. I'm gonna obey you, and then we do it again. That moment when you said, God, I'm gonna change. From now on, I'm gonna obey you. Was that all for nothing for you? And the first thing that this is showing us is that the security of our salvation is not dependent upon the strength of our commitment to God. I don't want you guys to get that this morning. The security of our, of our salvation is dependent on the, the strength of God's commitment to us. Like, it rests on that. And think about this, church. If the security of yours, our salvation, and the safety of your eternity was dependent upon you keeping good to your commitments with God, it'd be game over, wouldn't it? We'd be done. But the strength and the security and the safety of our, uh, of our eternity and our salvation is dependent not on what we do for him, but dependent on him following through with his promise to us. His strength is actually what keeps 
the commitment intact. He follows through. When we're weak, the Bible says that he's strong. When we're faithless, the word says that he remains faithful. When we fail over and over and over again, he gives us mercy over and over again. Remember that covenant that God made with Abraham. Was God faithful to keep that covenant? Yes. Because for God in keeping that covenant to send his son, it wasn't just let the curse of death happen to me if I don't keep this covenant. That wasn't what it was for God. For God it was let this curse of death happen to me so that I can keep this covenant, so that I can keep it intact. God still remained faithful to his covenant by sending his son, even when his people failed him, even after his people failed him, time and time again, God did not fail. And the second thing I want you to see is that what God's people did here wasn't pointless. It's easy to read this and think it was all for nothing because three chapters later, they're just gonna repeat the patterns and it's all gonna go to hell in a handbasket and even though they built the wall, the people's hearts are all jacked up again. So was what Nehemiah did all for nothing? And I wanna encourage us this morning and I'll end on this. That just because we know that we're gonna fail God's word over and over, it actually shouldn't stop us from committing to keeping God's word over and over. We are a people that get back up and we continue to walk in faithfulness and in obedience to him. And over and over again you will fail and over and over again you'll continue to get back up and it actually, this whole act of mercy on and grace on behalf of God, on behalf of God, should be something, who, something that prompts us to commit to returning to Him over and over again. And so, what is the hope that we can have in returning to Him, committing to obey Him, even once more in our lives? And when it comes to our righteousness and our holiness and living a life of obedience, we know that it's inevitable that the cycle is going to repeat but we also know that there's this unbreakable chain because of the finished work of Jesus, right? That just because we continue to repeat it does not mean that his commitment to us and his covenant with us is broken when it comes to our salvation. So what is it right now, church, that you're shaping your life around? What are the things, even as I mentioned this this morning, that you can think of that's like, I give a lot of time and effort and money. I sink a lot of investment into a handful of things. Those things are shaping you. When it comes to walking this out with Jesus, just in these three things that we're gonna talk about this morning, right? Marriage, Sabbath, and rest. Your money and your time. How are those things shaped around Christ in your life? How have you deliberately made commitments, specific commitments in your life to shape those things around him because that is what will end up shaping you? I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up and um, we're gonna spend some time taking communion. Dan, if you wanna come up. And one of the things I, wanted, I just wanna challenge you guys with as we kind of wrap up and we take communion is it's so easy as believers to come to commands like this and think to ourselves like, it's not important, I don't have to do these. My challenge to you is like, discipline is important in your life. Anybody in here 
that has ever disciplined their life for any purposes at all. You've reaped the rewards of the discipline that you've put in. And unfortunately, it feels as though the church today has disciplined their life around all the things that don't matter. And when it comes to the things that do, we just kind of let them go to the wayside because Jesus has got it. And I'd encourage you this morning to analyze your marriage, to analyze rest, to look at your money and your time and to say to the Lord, like, well, how do I honor you with these things today, Jesus? Because of all that you've done for me in response to that, how is it that I give back to you in these ways? Would you guys stand with me so I can pray for you? If you'd bow your heads. Holy Spirit, we just wait on you this morning. And we ask that you come. I can sense in myself that sometimes there's just anxiety and all the stuff that wells up within me. And yet I get into moments like this and we stop and we just say, what matters? What's important? Why am I freaking out over all the things on this earth? Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd come and you'd give a rest to your church this morning. There's some people in this room that even as we talk about their marriages and being unequally yoked, they're sitting in situations like that right now and they feel hopeless. And I pray, Jesus, in your name, by your power, that you would come and you'd infiltrate that marriage this morning, God, that their spouse would just have a come to Jesus moment, a time where it's not because of the convincing of their spouse to try to draw them back to you. It was because your spirit stepped in and you did the heavy lifting in somebody's heart to cause transformation to happen. And really, Jesus, that's all that we can ask for today. We can look at all three of these areas that we talk about and be like, I don't wanna do that, I don't wanna do that, I'm resistant to this. But what we ask is that your kingdom come and your will be done. We ask that our hearts be opened up to receive and to hear from you this morning, that you begin to enter our hearts. You begin to transform and change the inside. God, we are so good at perfecting the outside and taking on the form of a Christian while allowing the insides of us to just rot away and die. But I pray that not be for your church, that this morning new life be breathed into your people, a new hope be present for us this morning in you, Jesus. And this, even as we talk about Sabbath and we talk about time and money and these things, that no longer would they be things that we look at as too hard for me to make happen in my life, but they become things that we say, God, all I want to do is honor you with all that I have because you have gone above and beyond for me. We thank you this morning, Jesus, King Jesus, for your mercy time and time again in our life that we are so unworthy of. We thank you for your continued grace upon grace. I just pray this morning, God, that you knit our hearts to yours, Jesus that we be a people that are wholly abandoned and devoted to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let's prepare for communion. Before we do, I know I have to answer the question you all have. He didn't get the ticket, okay? So he got off. So again, God's good, and he's holding you accountable to those promises that you made to him, okay? I want to walk three places with you as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord. I want you to walk with me to the muddy waters of the Jordan. It's crowded. There's a prophet, John, and he sees his cousin, and he cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sins of the world. From there, we'll go to a crowded synagogue up in Nazareth. And this Jesus has been asked to speak, and he gets a scroll, and he rolls it open, and he says, Behold, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. I'm going to open prison doors. The blind are going to see. The lame are going to walk. And then he says, today in your hearing, this is fulfilled. And the last place I'll take you is an upper room. And Jesus is gathered with his disciples. And he says to them, remember, never forget. Remember me because the healing of broken lives is going to come at the cross. The healing for your lives, the restoration of your relationship with God demands blood and a body broken. It's a free gift. You just need to come and receive. Here at Anthem, we celebrate communion. The table of the Lord is open to all, all who know that you're broken. But by accepting the gifts of the body of Jesus and his blood, you're made whole. So we welcome you to come to the table. Parents, we leave it up to you when it comes to your children. But this is a time to never just do it casually, but to reflect and to remember, but also with joy, because the death of Jesus was not a tragedy. It was an accomplishment. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. Behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. You're welcome to come and receive. But first, Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your commitment to us. We thank you that your body was broken, that your blood was shed, 
so that our broken lives could be healed. And we thank you in your name. Amen. Come to the table of the Lord.